I don't know if you've uh, been looking at Revelation at all. Um, we, we looked at chapter 1 last week, and uh, it, it is a wonderful book, but off, too often it is just put down very, very quickly because of the language, because of the imagery that is used uh, throughout. Dif- different words and images are used to describe certain things. Probably, and we mentioned this last week, in order that the writer, John, uh, the apostle who wrote John's Gospel, 1, 2, 3 John, the letters, probably so that he might protect himself from persecution. That's one kind of hypothesis. For example, when you get to chapter 13, one of the famous chapters, the sea beast and the harlot there, there it's probably there, there is referring to the Roman government at the time. Um, if that, of course, was said explicitly, if John explicitly mentioned it then, given the context it's in house arrest and Patmos and so on, death would have been quite inevitable. Uh, imagery, though, abounds. Uh, but that isn't unusual for this type of literature being apocalyptic literature. It's apocalyptic simply because it's describing what comes at the end of time. But as with most of the literature of this type, the transition from history to eternity is purposefully blurred. There is a greyness to it. Therefore, the, the author actually intends us to see multiple um, kind of meanings in the text, both temporal and eternal meanings. Um, we saw last week in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. It, it, there, John, uh, while sitting on the island of Patmos, we saw in verse 9, has been given this image of one like the Son of Man, uh, an awesome priest who tends the lampstands of the temples, the churches in which he dwells. And that we have then this divine king who stands and rules over them, the awesome, all-seeing judge. Um, But this one who speaks to John, this one who is like the Son of Man, an image taken from uh, Daniel chapter 7, the one is described as, and clearly is obviously Jesus. Uh, and his nature and character is then really meticulously described, isn't he, from verses 9 to 20. Uh, if you weren't here last week, can I, uh, uh, the talk is actually uploading at the moment onto the website, and you can get it. Richard Copeland is, I thought, brilliant in just unpacking Jesus' character and nature in verses 9 to 20 last week. Do, do get that and listen to it this week. So we now get to the seven churches, these letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus, through John, the apostle, now addresses the angels of each of these churches. Angels, again, is code, it's imagery for the leaders of each of these churches. And he addresses each on, on one single scroll, as we see in chapter 1, verse 11, uh, with a personal message to each. And with each, he begins, Jesus begins with an assertion of his authority, which is taken from the awesome description of him back in chapter 1. So you'll recognise phrases which come up. He then explains that he knows, understands, perceives the the true nature, the reality and condition of each of the churches. And likewise, it's pretty obvious that Jesus is fully aware of the reality of us in Christchurch Earlsford. He's very, very aware of the reality of each of us as individuals too. Then he issues a message. And most of them have a command to repent, simply to turn. And a warning if they fail to do so. And in all cases, a promise of wonderful reward in the future 
Uh, the reward is for those who obey his word, Jesus' word, and who overcome with a life of faithfulness to God. Uh, these seven letters to the churches were intended then, and they seem to still operate today as a kind of audit. Uh, seven representative churches that represent all churches throughout all history. It's a survey, and I think we do very well to listen to each. Now, it's like a scan in a hospital, if you like. These, these letters reveal the reality of us corporately, but also of us individually in our hearts. So I think we need to prepare to be challenged. These seven letters are a great challenge, and we need to pray for change. But they, they do cut straight to the heart. And tonight in this letter to Ephesus, the big question is, comes in verse 4, have you forsaken your first love? It seems that those listening to the words of uh, this passage have lost that first passionate love they had for God. They were busy, very busy as a church, but it was all activity with very little heart. Uh, it's like when you move jobs for the, for the month or so, you're still in that previous job. You know the, you know the feeling? Um, you know, you're very active but your mind and your heart aren't there. It's with the next job, isn't it? You tap away at your computer for a little while and you have no passion for the work. You think you're boss and it kind of all comes out. You kind of tell your boss what you think of him and all that kind of stuff. Your heart and your mind aren't there. It just becomes routine, doesn't it? Similarly in relationships. It can happen in marriages too. Familiarity with people, situations and practices. You can maintain the activity you know, it's Thursday night, um, my darling wife. It's Thursday night, it's cinema night. Let's go, it's routine, I'll do it again and again, and so on. Um, but there's no spontaneity. Uh, there's no joy in that. There's lots of activity, but no heart. Our passage tonight provides a challenge, I guess, corporately and individually. There may be lots of activity in your life. Good activity, but is there any heart Love, desire behind it. Well, let's look, have a look at this letter now to the church in Ephesus. The letter to the church in Ephesus. Well, this young church, bit of background, had grown up, of course, in the well, it's a magnificent, mighty port of Ephesus. Um, it was around 40 years prior to this letter being written that um, Paul, in his second and third missionary journeys, had passed through and preached in Ephesus. And if you don't know what they are, read the second half of Acts or just turn to the back of your Bibles, you'll probably find a handy map which will point to the fact that he went there twice. Uh, Timothy had become their famous pastor. Um, the, the Ephesians themselves were probably very uh, sophisticated people, very uh, well educated, socially adept. These are the kind of guys you want at your dinner parties. Um, you know, these are the people, if they walk through the doors uh, of the church in Earlsfield here, they fit in. They're middle class, lovely people. Ephesus is the first letter. Why? Well, it's, it's the strategic access point of the whole of Asia Minor at the time, now, now known as Turkey. Uh, and therefore, uh, John writes... Uh, to this focal point. It's like the London of its era and place. Um, therefore, this letter goes first, the first letter goes to the hub, the church in Ephesus. 
And it is to this congregation that Jesus reveals to John the words of this letter. And notice in verse 1 how he's reminded these are the words of Jesus. That little introductory point there. But these are the words of Jesus. Notice in verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, of course, that points us back to chapter 1 and to verse 12. It's, it's that one, like the Son of Man. It's Jesus, clearly, who is speaking here to this church. Both the images of stars and lampstands are Old Testament pictures coming from Zechariah and later on in Daniel, books of the Old Testament. And they point you towards, um, to depict a wisdom and also a power, Daniel, eternal power. Uh, seven lampstands represent the seven churches and show that each has their own place in the, in the heavenly temple, in God's eternal kingdom. But this image in verse 1 shows that Christ is the one who walks among them. That he is present. Christ is in the very presence of these churches as he is here now by his spirit. He is present and ruling and speaks to us. As he did to the church in Ephesus through his words as recorded in the Bible which you have right in front of you. And the question you need to ask You know, Jesus is speaking right now. Can you hear his voice? Have a listen. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. So we come to our first point on your outlines there. Um, just to summarise, simply saying, I know your deeds. In the original language, which of course Greek is, the first clause, I know your deeds. It, it's a declaration, but it's substantiated by the following three kind of examples. And we, sh- we see that Jesus knows their every deed, whether as a congregation or as an individual. He knows everything. It's funny, isn't it? If you think, what would you know? You think uh, if 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 someone were to say that to us, how would that make you feel? I know all of your deeds. Would you be frightened if someone said that to you? Because it's true. Now look what Jesus said of the church in Ephesus and their deeds. He says, I know your deeds. And the first thing that he points out, look, he says, he recognises their their hard work and perseverance. That is, I think he's saying there that they're a busy, industrious church, aren't they? They probably run numerous courses. They're they're working in the community. Um, They buy lots of books and give them away. And they're, they're doing lots of great, good things. They were a hard at work as a church. And the verb actually suggests there, in the original, to the point of weariness. Now look what else he says. Their perseverance is also noted. The implication here is that they're courageous, they're gallant, uh, they're willing to face suffering, both in their deeds as a church, but also probably as individuals within the uh, city of Ephesus. 
Uh, secondly, though, look at what Jesus recognises. Firstly, that they're, they're hard work and perseverance, they're an industrious church. But secondly, they recognise that they're intolerance of wicked men and false apostles. So it seems there that they're an upright church. That is, their zeal for what is right uh, pushes them to sift out from amongst them wicked people, wicked false teachers. Now, the term wicked suggests that they've got very high standards, uh, moral standards, and it seems that they were very keen on keeping them within the church. But rather than just morality being scrutinised, so was teaching. People in the past have clearly been trying to teach uh, false things within the church, falsehood, uh, but not for long. They were sharp on it. They picked up on it. And once again, the, uh, the Ephesian church did not lack any activity whatsoever. They were willing to contend, probably because of the encouragement given to them through Paul in his letter to them, in, in, you know, especially in chapter 6 and so on. They gave all the armour to, to contend appropriately. But such was their intolerance for false teaching from false apostles. They branded these men even liars. I mean, in our translation, it's found to be false, but it's a pretty weak translation, it has to be said. Literally, it's saying, you are liars, the Ephesian church has said to these people. But it's not actually very difficult, is it, to be like that? Uh, contention and intolerance is on many occasions a very easy way, isn't it, to express our differences. Uh, the book of Jude in the Bible, for example, um, is very clear that in the midst of false teaching, contention is very appropriate. But it's not always. We're not to make small differences of things like style, the way that we like to do things in churches, an issue of division, something that we should contend against. And music's one of those things, isn't it? I, I'm involved in a bit of music around churches and so on. Uh, but the amount of division and contention that happens within churches in this country because of a style of it, I like classical, I like this, and so on, is so very sad, isn't it? Oh, it seems the Ephesians were doing well at the process of contention and, to, and the intolerance of false teaching. But the question I suppose is being asked here is, was this just an empty activity? Certainly they're praised for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans there in verse 6. This was a group who simply just, they loved to play really hard in the world, uh, but kind of come to church and pretend that all was well before God, even though nothing in their lives reflected their relationship with God. Now, the church in Ephesus, they were upright, they were, they were a contending church, all of which they're praised for here. But is it just empty activity? Thirdly, look what they're praised for. Um, continue there. Thirdly, your endurance under hardships. See, lastly, they're praised because they've faced suffering and hardships. It seems as a witnessing church. Uh, it's not explicit that they were a witnessing church, that they were telling others about Jesus. But they were suffering, look, verse 3, for my name. That is, for the name of Jesus, in making him known. Uh, the words persevere and endure here are brought together in this last section, in, in this account uh, uh, of the Ephesian church, once again to show that the church is busy and remains so, despite all that they're going through. 
despite their contentions, despite immorality, and now, despite the hardships they're facing and the suffering they're facing in Ephesus. But they just keep on going. You have not grown weary. They are, uh, it says there. You have not grown weary, just to summarise this last point. And whether we see that as an observation by John or an encouragement, a praise, uh, what is clear is that there is a resolve within the church in Ephesus uh, for work, to see the work of the church continuing and for the gospel to be made known uh, in that place. Everyone is busy. They're all doing their bit. They're an incredibly active bunch of people. And they looked as though they could go, that they could go on and on and on. But what about the heart? What about the heart? See, it's all well and good, isn't it, to keep going. But what if behind all, all there is, is just a loveless motivation? A routine without any passion? A, a discipline but no love? The church in Ephesus were busy, and they're busy with good things, John is stating. But one thing is held against them. Look at verse 4. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So to our second point, you have forsaken your first love. With our legalistic tendencies, we do sometimes like to think that we, we may meet the approval of God if we do more at church, if we uh, tell more people about Jesus, if, if we help old ladies across the road and do lovely things in the community. But from the severity of this warning, it is apparent that our love for God is paramount. That is, being busy, even doing good things in and for the church, cannot and will not replace passionate love for God, born from trusting in Christ's death on the cross in our place for our sin. Despite everything that is seemingly good in the church, Jesus says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now this does not mean that they're ignoring others uh, in the church or themselves. No, we see they're very, very busy. Rather, it seems to suggest that in their busyness, for God, they lack the motivating love of God, born of trusting in Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. And that is what creates a passion to serve a heart to serve rather than a duty to serve. They were, if you like, on autopilot, just coaxing along on the same old routes. And so Jesus, what he does brilliantly in verse 5, is he, he points them to their past. Now look at that. Remember the height from which you have fallen from. Certainly it seems that in the past, this church was a place where God was loved and it was obvious and apparent. It was filled with people passionate about God. And Jesus calls them to remember this. And the word fallen, it, it's presented in its perfect tense. 
It's pretty shocking. It comes with it uh, with a sense of tragedy and completeness. Uh, if you like, what has occurred in the, in the Ephesian church is done. Uh, their love and zeal for God have, if you like, gradually, very gradually dwindled away. And now it had reached this kind of climactic low. Without realising it, the, the Ephesian church had just hit rock bottom. I don't know if you've ever jumped off a big cliff into some water. Or off a, a, a diving pool. I used to be a swimmer, and just for a bit of fun at the end of swimming, we used to go along to the diving pool and climb up to the 10 metre board and yeah, somewhat hold your breath for a while and look down and think. But you, you stand on top of a 10 metre board, I don't know if you've done it, and you think... I'm going to jump off that. I've got, I've got ages of time before I hit the water. Do you think that? When you jump off a cliff or off a big board, you think, it's going to be, oh yeah, I'll probably just be able to count to 400 by the time I hit the water. It'll be fine, no problem. But in reality, as soon as you take your feet off the board, it's milliseconds. And then, whack, you hit the water, don't you? I think the Ephesians may have been aware that their love for God was dwindling. But now Jesus alerts them to the fact that they've just gone whack. And they've hit rock bottom. And, and what Jesus is doing, he's, he's kind of pointing up to the board and he's saying, look guys, at the po- look how far you have fallen. Think about it for a moment. I, if you're a Christian here tonight, do you love God more now than you did, say, 12 months ago? Are you more excited and passionate in your relationship with God right now than you were 12 months ago? Do you appreciate now more than ever before what Jesus Christ achieved for you on the cross more than 12 months ago? Oh, you may be very, very busy doing so many things within church and wherever it may be, But busyness is empty without that passionate love and appreciation for what God has done for you through Jesus on the cross. Things don't just, they just don't mean the same, do they? If it's done out of duty rather than out of love. Can you imagine if I'm married to Sarah, if if I came home on a Thursday night and just said, yeah, it's Thursday, six o'clock, it's flowers night. There you go. I'm not saying that disciplines are inappropriate, but that kind of loveless duty. There's no love in that, is there? We may even speak of God to our, to our friends and, and invite them to church. We may even you know, tell everyone of the gospel and how good Jesus is. But if we do so out of duty, firstly, I think it's just so obvious. It is so transparent to our friends. But most importantly, Jesus knows. He knows our deeds. And that is the point of this passage. Jesus knows. You can't fool him. You can't just do more to cover up that lovelessness and pretend you love him through just piling up the more and more that you do in church and so on. He knows. He knows where we have fallen from. And some of us have fallen a long, long way. We used to be mad about God, some of us, didn't we? 
But now we're as far from him as we've ever been. Just maybe through tiredness, working so hard. We all know the stresses and the, and the, and the trials of living in London. Think back to that time you became a Christian there. Maybe you were at a, camp, a Christian camp in the summer. Maybe you were just in the church one day and you, you heard the gospel and you, you were enriched from hearing the word of God explained and you firstly grasped the kindness of God expressed in Jesus Christ. You heard that and you realised that you were someone who had turned your back on God in sin. And you realised that God was a just God and had to judge that sin. And you then realised that the only way that you could be with God forever was to trust in Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross. That simple thing of just the swap. Do you remember that time when you just first opened your eyes and God opened your eyes and you saw that truth? Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember how, when you when you saw the wonderful truth and you, you kind of your your breath was kind of oh, really? Did God love me that much to send His one and only Son to be brutalized on a Roman cross for my sin in my place? Do you remember the joy of knowing that? Do you remember the freedom that it brought? Do you remember the kind of the elation in your heart and your life and it was so transparent to everyone around you? Do you remember that? Or perhaps you need to look back and see where you how far you have fallen. Of course you may be at a high point. You you might be just enjoying so much reading God's word and hearing Jesus speak to you through the word and by the spirit every day and, and having an intimate relationship with him because you're praying to him it's just a conversation with God it's uh, yeah, enjoying that then praise God if that's the case keep going you're in the best place ever but I'm sure for some of us we are at this very moment being very challenged by God's words by Jesus' words So we need to remember, firstly. But secondly, it says, repent. Do the things you did at first. See, our relationship with God is not irretrievable. That intimate, passionate relationship is not irretrievable. And Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus who have abandoned their first love of God and he says, guys, turn. Repent. Stop ignoring God. Stop not investing in your relationship with God and turn and begin to invest. Do the things you did at first. See, the remedy for this diminishing love and passion for God is to firstly take very seriously that which you have taken from Him. Repenting, you see, is a whole life change. is a whole turning of oneself. It is a battle with sin. It is a discipline of the heart. Is it a fight? And you'll be looking at that in Ephesians 6 very shortly in your home groups. But the problem is we tend to approach sin in such a blasé fashion, don't we? Uh, so that when we get into difficulty in our life, when strife and troubles come, we just automatically default to the, the sinful position, the, the thing of weakness in our lives. So rather than taking on situations uh, which we know cause us to sin, whether that's the TV or the internet or a person, a relationship, whatever it may be, we kind of like to play with it. We don't just banish it, push it away, put it to death, as Colossians 3 says. 
We just sort of kind of like, we, we play compromise with it. So if you, you know, you've got a problem with TV and so on, you know, maybe late at night, we say, oh yeah, 11. And then 11 becomes 11.30, and then 12, and, and, and so on, and, and so on. Repenting is not only saying sorry, it is an action of the heart and life. It is a resolution to not do it again. It is a turning your back on that way with the help of God's strength. Well, with the negative comes the positive. Repent, but now do the things you did at first. It seems the church were a witnessing church as they suffered for the name of Jesus in verse 3. But John has shown that, that this work was loveless. Uh, that is, you can imagine that they were doing evangelism, they were telling their friends about a Jesus out of duty. Uh, because it's the right thing to do. But now the encouragement is to do the things you did at first. And for the Ephesians, that would have meant telling their friends about Jesus in response to all that Jesus has done for them. Have you ever been like that? I had two friends at university um, who were just so infectious. Uh, they would tell everything that could walk about Jesus. didn't matter where you were, on a hockey pitch, in a bar, it didn't matter. Why? Because it wasn't out of duty. It's because they were absolutely in love with God who had given them Jesus to suffer the punishment they deserve in their place. They were convinced of the gospel. And most importantly, they, they just passionately wanted to love God and share him with others. They weren't idiots. They were simply fueled by God's love as they studied his word and prayed to him. Their relationship with God was exciting and it was infectious as a result. If we speak to our friends about God, they're more likely to turn us down if they think we're just a bunch of frauds. But if we shine for excited and passionate and for our love for God, in your own way. Well, you will find that that will be infectious. Finally, let's go to the warning at the end. There's one every week. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So he says, repent, do the things you did at first. What? Or be removed, he says. It's a start warning, isn't it? To close. It's one that we can ignore both corporately and as individuals. Repentance, of course, is a sign of belief. And those of us as Christians will have to repent daily before God. And if you do not know Christ, your relationship to God begins with turning. Saying, I want to trust in Jesus' death on the cross. You say, if we do not repent, if we're not sorry for the way that we have lived our lives, for that God-hurting sin, if we're stubbornly reveling in that rebellious way and happy to ignore any change, then look, this is a sign of unbelief. And look what it results in. It results in a removal, a just and fair judgment. The language, again, is directed towards the congregation. and It's coded. It simply says, if you do not repent, Jesus that is, the judge there will come and remove your church, lampstand, verse 5, and take it from its place in eternity. See, if the congregation do not have promised eternal residence with God in heaven, then the congregation will have eternal residence away from God's goodness. And the place of that that the Bible describes is called hell. And it sounds awful. 
a place removed from God's kindness and love. So finally, verse 7, let's close with this. He who has an ear, I hope you've got one, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that's plural, means it's for us as well. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Overcoming, just simply, it implies a battle has occurred in order to overcome. And for those with faith in Jesus for salvation, our eternal life is secure. But the assurance of that salvation, our assurance, if we are Christians, um, it can be seen in the fight that we take against our sin. That the fight that each of us has to overcome that which ruins our relationship with God and our intimacy with God. See, our love for God will depend on two things. Firstly, how much we engage in the fight against sin in our lives. And secondly, how seriously we take our relationship with God as we communicate to him in prayer and as we feed on him in his word, the Bible. The one who overcomes the temptations to ignore God should be totally assured of eternal life with him. The one who gives in, who chooses not to overcome, well, please be warned. If you're here and you are not a Christian, that you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, do you know what your first love in your life should be? Let me commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ. Find out about him. Ask some questions about him. And if you are here today as a Christian, and you know that your first love should be the Lord Jesus Christ, hear the warning. Have you forsaken your first love? We're just going to have a moment of quiet. Um, and if you'd like to turn in your sheets, we've purposely um, put the service this way, because I guess many of us will want to turn to Jesus uh, in confession in a moment. Just on the inside little tab of the sheets, it says confession, and there's some words down there. We'll have a moment of quiet um, that we can come to God and just ask ourselves, examine ourselves and see, have we forsaken our first love? And if we have, if we have fallen a distance, then let's pray this prayer together in just a moment, that we would earnestly repent. Just a moment of quiet.